Thank you, Father, for what a great God you are. And thank you that even in your greatness, though, you've not overlooked us. And thank you for the Lord Jesus who humbled himself and became obedient even unto death, becoming that servant to serve us. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity now to open our Bibles and to think and to consider who you are and how you have worked and how you are working. Father, help us to focus, help us to put aside the cares of the day already, that we would prepare our hearts and have minds and ears ready to receive your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, did you know that um, Christians can believe some really funny things? I don't know if your experience has been anything like mine, but if you've been around church world very long, and that is you're a Christian and you've been a part of a Bible teaching church for any number of years, have you figured out that, that you're just different than a lot of people in the world? My experience was such that I grew up in a, a very conservative uh, Christian home. My dad was a pastor of a, of a very conservative little Bible church in the Midwest. And it didn't take me long at all to figure out that Christians are just different than the rest of the world. I just knew that my household wasn't like a lot of other people's households. I'll give you a few examples. I remember in second grade, for example, having a note that I had to take to school to give to my teacher that excused me from the field trip that they were going to take to go see Dr. Doolittle or Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. They were having a day off and the class was going to have a special trip. And I had to take a note in to say that I was exempt from the trip that day. Please keep Van back at school. I've thought about it a little bit and I've thought, now isn't that odd that my mother would send a note to school rather than just keep me home for the day? I just thought it was normal. I was a Christian and I was taught in my household, and my dad preached, that Christians didn't go to the theater. We were separate from the world, and that was worldly entertainment, and we weren't to do that. And so I took my note to school and gave it to my teacher, and she marched me across the hall to the third grade, grade class, and I spent all day just doodling on a piece of paper or whatever, reading a book or whatever, um, sticking out like a bright neon light in the back of the class. There's the kid that doesn't go to movies. He's different than everybody else. I remember my two best friends growing up, Tommy and Johnny Simon. I told you one time about helping Johnny Simon break his arm. Tommy was my best friend. Tommy and Johnny were my best friends. Tommy was a year older. I was in the middle, and Johnny was the youngest. And we all played ball. It was south suburbs of Chicago. We played ball all the time. We had great times together. And as they got old enough, Tommy and Johnny got to sign up to be part of Little League. But I didn't get to sign up to be in Little League because guess why? They had the opening parade for the Little League season on Sunday afternoon. And I wouldn't be allowed to be in that parade on Sunday afternoon. And sometimes they would have games and practice on Wednesday night. And I went to church on Wednesday night. So instead of being able to be on the team and maybe skip some of those events, 
I've thought about it. I don't know why, what my mom and dad were thinking about it. It was just normal to be abnormal in my household. Well, we'll talk about worldliness another time and separation. But you know, when I think back, and, and actually I really thank God, those, the Lord used those experiences in my life not to harden my heart, but to teach me a lot of important lessons. Whether my parents were completely right or wrong, I know that their motives were pure. But I remember that one of the greatest areas of distinction in school growing up happened in fourth grade when I raised my hand in Mr. Rutsky's class to explain to him as a nine-year-old, ten-year-old fourth grader how Noah's flood worked. And the look on Mr. Rutsky's face was, um, poor little Christian boy. He just doesn't really understand how it really is in the scientific world. I remember moving into Mrs. Mason's seventh grade biology class. I loved biology. I loved it when she didn't, now I know she probably didn't have her lesson plans together. And we would see the big reel-to-reel -reel films of all these biology, you know, the grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park. And it would take up the whole class. I loved watching those movies. I thought it would be great to be a wildlife biologist. But on more than one occasion in seventh grade biology, I can remember Mrs. Mason shutting down the class so that she could think about my probably looking back on it, somewhat disrespectful raising of the hand in the middle of her lectures and asking questions about, uh, you know, um, why sheep were harmless or something and why sheep hadn't evolved into animals that could protect themselves or why, how did ducks swim before they had webbed feet or something about the evolutionary process. And, and I can remember um, it was very distinct that I was different. I believe the Bible was true. In ninth grade biology, oh, my ninth grade teacher thought that I was from Mars. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel that, um, you know, because I believe the Bible and because I'm a Christian, I just don't fit in with the rest of the world. I just don't fit in with the way everyone is thinking around me. Well, this morning, we're beginning a brand new series out of the book of Genesis in the Bible. And I invite you to do two things right now. Take your Bible and flip through those opening flyleaf pages and turn to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And then the other thing, would you grab one of those sermon sheets on a chair nearby? There should be one on every chair this morning. And I want to apologize for the quality of the, of the sermon outline. They, our copier's not working very well, and it's got toner smudged a lot on it, and it was kind of last minute running off my notes here getting ready for this morning, and um, I decided to just use them anyway, even though they were inferior quality of what we like to hand out in public. I was thinking when they were running off and they were smudging, I thought, you know, I don't think, I'm going to have Donna not call the repairman this week, and we'll just wait. If we wait long enough, our copy machine will probably just fix itself. It'll get better and better. I was thinking, isn't that how it should work? I'm not sure. Copy machines are an exception somehow. But I want us to just lay a, a groundwork today and, you know, you may be new to our church or you may be here for the first time and you're thinking, man, what did I get myself into? Uh, these people actually believe the Bible is true or whatever. But, you know, I would challenge you, and even if you're an atheist or if you're someone who doesn't believe in creation, I want you to know that I totally understand 
that it is the commonly accepted norm of the day to believe that evolution is scientific. It's really not. It's a huge leap of faith. It's not scientific at all. But it is very common to believe that science has proven that evolution is true. Well, that's really only one of the topics we're going to talk about, but we're going to take our, our Bibles and we're going to look in the book of Genesis. And, and you may say, well, Pastor Van, why would you pick the book of Genesis? That's so controversial. There's lots of controversial things in Genesis. On your list, if you look at it, I'd like to read uh, some of the reasons why and some of the questions that we're going to be asking and hopefully answering, not all of which get answered out of the book of Genesis, but here's why I'm choosing for us to take our time, and we'll take some time, some months ahead here, to pick our way through the book of Genesis and to ask a lot of questions. It's the source of an incredible volume of information for example, look at your sheet. We're going to ask the question, did God create the world or is it evolving? What a great question. Doesn't theistic evolution really make the most sense? That is, don't you think the scientists are really right about evolution? But then God, yeah, he created, but he used evolution to create the world. Don't you think it makes the most sense to just bring the best of both worlds together? I really am comfortable with that. We'll ask that question. Could it be that Genesis is wrong and the rest of the Bible is right. How about that? How about if we just take the first few pages of our Bible and that just got added somehow, either mythologically or symbolically, or it spiritually represents something that God wants us to know, but we can't really know, and so the rest of our Bible will believe, but not that part. How about that? Is the creation story just symbolic or mythical? Does it really matter? How did sin enter the world? Can the Bible really hold up under scientific scrutiny? Hasn't modern day science pretty well proven the Big Bang Theory? And in parentheses, aren't you weird if you think that creation is true? Isn't it sort of unintellectual, actually, to believe that, that Genesis is a true account of origins? How is human life different from animal and plant life, really? Why did God design marriage? Now we're moving on into the next few chapters. And by the way, I plan for us to cover the entire book of Genesis. We're not just going to stop at chapter 11 or chapter 15, as some studies do. You'll find that about the middle, about chapter 15, it's going to turn narrative, and it's going to be more about people and its history. I think you'll enjoy it very much. Why did God design marriage? Is marriage only for a man and a woman, or is it gender neutral? Does it matter? And by the way, where did Cain get his wife? You guys are weird over there at that church. And by the way, what about those Nephilim giants in Genesis chapter 6? Maybe you've never heard about them. We'll get there. That's really weird. Why do we have to wear clothes? Who made that rule up? And does God care about modesty? Did God design us to work or is it the result of sin? Shouldn't I be working to get to a place in my life where I don't have to work? What about my work ethic? Does it matter to God? Should a Christian care about living green? That's a good question nowadays. And is global warming going to be the ultimate destruction of our world? What about dinosaurs in the Bible? Answer that one, Pastor Van. Did dinosaurs and people live at the same time? You can't believe that they did. 
Could the ark, Noah's ark, really have carried all of those animals? Could a flood have really covered the whole earth? Would a loving God really drown all those people and animals? You surely can't believe that really happened. Will God ever destroy the world again? And if so, how? Is Israel, moving now in through the middle section of Genesis, is Israel, boy, that's a controversial subject and country, isn't it? Politically speaking, is it truly special to God? And if so, why? We'll go to Genesis to find out. What is the source of the Israeli-Arab conflict? Will the Israeli-Arab conflict ever be resolved? Did God really give actual land to Israel? And does it still matter today? Why should we care about that? Would Abraham have really killed his own son up there on the mount? And if he had, what would have happened? Why are these men important? Noah, Abraham, Moses, and Joseph. Aren't they just kind of old guys like George Washington? And how did the Israelites ever get to Egypt in the first place? Well, those are just really some of the questions that we'll be asking and seeking to answer. Not all of the answers are found directly in the book of Genesis. And, and this morning, I want to continue to lay a groundwork for our message time and just take this first sermon in the series on Genesis and just talk to you about why I think this is such an important study. I don't know about you, but I find many of those questions just fascinating. And I think that it's important for us to understand the answers and the biblical mind on, and biblical teaching on these issues. I want you to remember, though, at the bottom of the front page there, as we go through the book of Genesis, that we do have to remember that, number one, Genesis is not a science book. There's a lot of things that Genesis just doesn't tell us. It lays it out in matter-of-fact form, making clear assumptions that are theocentric, God-centered, without bothering to explain many details. So one of the things we've got to ask is, how does Genesis and scientific discovery, how do they dovetail? Does science contradict the creation account or does it fit together? Does the actual creation account actually shed light on scientific discovery and archaeological discovery? I already mentioned it. Number one, it's not a science book. It's not going to answer all of our questions, number two. And number three, it assumes the existence of God. It does not prove the existence of God. And in fact, we're going to see in a few minutes that those who come to God must believe that he is by faith. It's a step of faith. We'll talk a little more about that in just a minute. Well, for the balance of our time, I want to just click off three more reasons why, not just to have fun with some of these questions and, and trying to seek biblical answers in a biblical mind, but I think there are three crucial reasons particularly why this is an important study, and I really hope that you'll keep an open mind. I'm, I kind of bumped into that idea earlier in my message here. It is possible that some of you are really, you just can't even hardly stand the idea of, of creation being a reality because you're so convinced that science has disproven it and that the Big Bang is what it's all about or whatever your thoughts are on it. But I want to challenge you that at least for an hour on Sunday morning, that you will do what you want me to do when I consider your point of view, and that is have an open mind. I'll read your books. You listen to my messages. And let's consider what the Word of God has to say to us and 
And you hear us out in the weeks ahead and you see if, if these Bible-believing fundamentalist Christians are as weird and wacky as you think they really are. Well, first of all, let me tell you that one of the real important reasons that we want to study Genesis is kind of simple, but I'm going to show you in a minute that it's pretty important. And number one, it is that's this, that Genesis is the beginning of the story, okay? Genesis, it means beginnings. Genesis is the beginning of the story. Now, we have a Bible that we carry and that we read and we call it God's Word and is God's Word, inspired of the Holy Spirit. And there's 66 books written by a whole bunch of different authors, 40-some authors, I believe. And it's compiled into this one book. But you need to know that it does tell a story. It's all about a story. It's about how God is a seeking, loving God, seeking a relationship with people who've had a broken relationship with him. But you need to understand that if you don't understand why and how the relationship with God was broken, why would the end of the book make sense? You see, the end of the book, and turn to Romans right now, chapter 5, the end of the story won't make any sense if you don't get the beginning of the story. I read a lot of different kinds of books, but one of my favorite books, I'll admit, it's probably pretty close to being a vice maybe, is reading Louis L'Amour books. You know about those? Little cowboy paperback cowboy books that are pretty decent read. They're fun. If you read one, you've read them all. Okay? And there's dozens and dozens of them. My Uncle Bud in Alaska got me going on those. You read a Louis L'Amour book, you can't start in the middle of the book. Or you can't take the first few chapters and tear them out and say, I'm going to really enjoy this book. I really like this book. Because in the first few chapters is when you find out what? You find out all about the characters. You find out about how they're related to one another. You find out about how they fit together. And you find out where good and evil, Louis L'Amour book's always about good and evil, and rescuing the maiden in distress out on the wagon train and rescuing her from the bad guy. Well, that you won't know what the guy's up to if you don't understand the beginning of the book. And you know, our Bibles are a lot the same. If we're going to understand the end of the story, and the end of the story has everything to do with the eternal destiny of my soul, I have to understand the beginning of the story or I won't get the end of the story. Look at Romans chapter 5. You see, think about Romans. Romans is one of the most theological books in our whole Bible. It's where the Apostle Paul really takes the whole letter and he's explaining our justification. He's explaining, that is, how we can come to a positional, righteous position, a, a position of righteousness in the eyes of a holy God. God is holy. We are sinners. Paul is teaching us the wages of our sin is death. But he goes on to explain that the gift of God is eternal life. Well, let me show you how if you don't understand the beginning or if you don't believe the beginning, it's going to really skew the end of the story. Romans chapter 5 is one illustration of this. Let's begin with verse 17, actually. Look what it says. For if by the trespass of one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? He's talking about two different men here. Consequently, verse 18, consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one righteous, one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. Let me read verse 18 again. 
Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Who's he talking about here? He's talking about the first Adam and then another name for Jesus, which is the second Adam. He's talking about how in the first Adam, all die. What's that all about? That's in Genesis. That's how sin entered the world. Now, wait a minute, Pastor Van. You don't understand. That's a myth I was just reading in our local paper. And I want to tell you something. When people believe that Genesis is a myth, it will continually, eventually mess up all the rest of their theology. Because you can't hold to it. In this situation, for example, just hold that thought there a minute. The first man, Adam, was a real man who really lived, who sinned and trespassed against God. Through Adam, it says in the Bible, all of us are sinners. Well, how does that make sense if that's mythological, if when we come over here, the second Adam, Christ, the second man came, and through his act of righteousness, dying on the cross for our sin, we have redemption, justification, and forgiveness of our sin. How can the first one be a myth if the second one is real? Listen, you're going to mess up your soteriology, your doctrine of salvation, if you mess up your theology of beginnings. You can't do that. But it's, it's, it's pretty common. And it's not that difficult to drive in any different direction around our county, Berkeley County, and find pastors who've bought into liberal theology who say, you can't trust your Bible, people. Science has proven it wrong. We've got to do something with these statements because they cannot be true. And when they start with Genesis and they throw Genesis out, you mark it down. They're not preaching a clear gospel in Jesus Christ because you can't, you can't throw out the first Adam without messing up the doctrine of the second Adam, Christ. Or they're really inconsistent in their Bible interpretation methods. I received a Shepherdstown paper and one of the local pastors wrote this in a whole story about revisiting Adam and Eve just this spring. This came to our house. This is a, a public paper that comes for free to all our mailboxes. He wrote in here, this local pastor wrote, Myths are stories about things that never were but always are. This mythic tale of the Garden of Eden has been around for a very long time. Many Christians see it, see it as depicting the fall of humankind from perfection and consequently blame Eve and punish all of her sisters. Others see the tale differently as the emergence of humans out of the animal world and consequently credit Eve for her courage and initiative. I once saw it the first way, now I see it the other way. Later in the article, he writes this about the creation account in Genesis. No one knows exactly how it happened in the misty past, how the first humans stood apart from humanoids. Genesis, on the one hand, offers a mythic story full of symbolic props, including a first couple, a garden, a serpent, and even God as a prop. Evolution, on the other hand, offers a scientific, physical, and biological story. Let's just stop there. You know, if you're not careful, you kind of think, oh, you're probably right. Kind of, Maybe it is mythical. That is pretty weird stuff there. 
we don't have time to look up the other verses, and we will revisit those verses later, but I just wanted to, to really emphasize this fact. That Genesis matters because if you don't get the beginning of the story right, you're not going to get the end of the story right, and ultimately, your Bible becomes useless to you. You can make it say whatever you want it to say. Secondly, I want you to note that we're going to do this study because Genesis is the bullseye for undermining faith. What do I mean by that? It's what everybody's shooting at. It's like a bunch of guys shooting their bow and arrow, and what do they want to hit? They want to hit the bullseye. They want to nail it. And if you want to nail someone's faith and you want to undermine someone's faith, where do you go? Where do you start? What do you start chiseling away at? You want to chisel away at the foundations of our faith in Genesis and the beginnings. You see, creating doubt, creating doubt about creation and the word of God has been a key tactic of the enemy in undermining the faith of our young people. It's not a new situation. Think about it. In Genesis chapter 3, what are we going to find? We're going to find the mythic tale of, I jest, the tale of Adam and Eve and how Eve eats the forbidden fruit. What did God say? God said, you may eat of any fruit of the garden, but you cannot eat of the fruit that is in the, on the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Was that a real tree? Was that real fruit? Is this just fairy tales, just a spiritual symbolism? And when we have this crazy creature character that enters the story, Christians believe the weirdest stuff. That this serpent, indwelt by Satan, could speak to her. And what did he do? Do you remember the first thing he said to her? Did God really say? Remember that? We'll talk about it. Did God really say? What was he doing? He was trying to instill what? Doubt in her mind about the veracity of God's word. Is God's word reliable? Is it trustworthy? God didn't really mean that. And what did he do? He really wreaked havoc. You know, I want to tell you that um, Satan has not stopped that tactic. And that to this day, one of the things that's happening in the minds of our young people, you go to any secular university, any most secular schools, like my own experience back in the 60s and 70s, it hasn't gone away. The idea is to create doubt. When you undermine Genesis in the mind of our children, you, you undermine doubt. Hey, you know, let's do something here for a minute. Let's just pretend that we have called a meeting here this morning and we're gathered here in this place to work up a scheme, a, a plan, and we want to create doubt in the minds of our children as to whether or not Genesis is true. So let's, let's just think, how are we going to do that? And we're just racking our brain and, and, uh, you know, we got old Bill Hearn over there. He's a pretty shrewd guy. He grew up down in coal mining country down southern West Virginia. He's been around a while and, and he comes up with this idea. I know it will do, Pastor Van. We're going to have this box, okay? And we're going to present this box to our children. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to undermine Genesis. And the fact that there is a real God who spoke the worlds into existence, who is trustworthy, who cares about us, who has a plan of redemption for us, who can order the steps of our lives, and we're going to try to undermine and make our children doubt everything he ever said, and we're going to put together this box, and the box is going to have nothing in it. Okay? Nothing in it. Nothing. 
Okay, empty box, nothing. And we'll take that box. Okay, Bill, what are we going to do with the box? We're going to tell our children this. We're going to tell our children that if, if they just wait long enough, that everything that is, eyeballs, kitty cats, fishing lures, snowmobiles, everything, big spruce trees, rocks along a creek bed, that if we just wait long enough, boys and girls, if you just wait long enough, everything that is will come from nothing, with nothing acting upon it. And in fact, if you wait long enough, that nothingness will literally explode. And out of that explosion, everything will come into existence. If we were having a meeting to undermine the faith of our children, we would never suggest the empty box theory. It is the stupidest thing that anybody's ever heard of. Parents who are teaching their children not to use that word, I apologize. You see, my 10-year-old boy knows, Daddy, there ain't nothing in the box. And unless somebody puts something in the box, there ain't going to be nothing in the box. Okay? That's the way it is. But look at how successfully we have been undermined in our faith by the simple, ignorant formula that everything comes from nothing if you wait long enough. How can that undermine our faith in the Bible? And indeed it has. Our boys and girls grow up believing in Christ and following Jesus and studying the Word and go off at age 19 to college and get all mixed up based on the fact that they've got a PhD in the classroom who can explain to them how something can come from nothing. You have got to be kidding me. To create doubt. We're, we're out of time, but I was going to do the same thing with my chair here. This is a four-legged chair, but it doesn't work good. It really should be a two-legged chair. See, you, you're not smart enough to use a two-legged chair. This is a four-legged chair. You know, we can talk all about this stool, this chair for a while. What do we know? We know what? We know that the fact that this stool is here in my hand, that somewhere out there, there's what? There's a chair builder. There's a wood shop. Somebody cut down trees. Somebody had a design and somebody had a plan. And not only because there's a stool, is there a stool builder? We know that because this stool has four legs, that it was thought through. It has design and purpose and function. And that doesn't just happen. You don't have a two-legged stool, unless it's a walker. No, we have a four-legged stool, right? Let's teach this to our children. Let's teach that stools come out of nowhere, chairs just make themselves, and it just so happened that it's a four-legged chair. And that happens to work really well. Kind of like your eyeball, it just happened to work really well. None of us would ever think to teach our children that. Why? Because it's totally illogical. So don't you tell me that believing that an Almighty God who existed outside of time and outside of materialism, could not speak out of nothing the worlds into existence that I am nuts for having that kind of faith because if you're an evolutionist or if you're a naturalist, you have to believe that everything comes from nothing given enough time. You have a greater faith than I do, buddy. No doubt about it. Let's turn to Hebrews 11, chapter, chapter 11, please. 
We'll be closing in just a moment, please. Hebrews chapter 11. We had a lot to fit into our service today. I hope you've been blessed by it and encouraged. Hebrews 11, 1 through 3. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, look at there it is. Not by science. Science you have to observe, right? Science has to be repeatable, reproducible. It has to be chronicled. You have to be able to test it against itself and, and, and do it over and over again and get the same results. You cannot scientifically prove the origin of the earth with your Bible or with a microscope. But it is by faith, verse 3, we understand that the universe was formed, what? At God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. You say, how can you believe that? Because God is in the equation. I'm a lot more comfortable with this when God is in the equation that, that, than that everything came from the invisible with no God in the equation. Verse 6, And without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. I have sought Him and I have been rewarded. Thirdly, the reason I want to study Genesis is because it is the battlefield of two major worldviews. There are many worldviews. But the two that especially come in conflict in our world today, the battlefield of the two major worldviews, a worldview is an ideology, a theology. It's a way of thinking to which you arrive at what is truth or reality. It's the thought process that you go through. And the two worldviews that are in conflict are naturalism, that is, that everything can be explained in the physical, there is no spiritual, versus Christianity. Let me explain it like this as we conclude. I like to go deer hunting. Because all life is not equal, I hunt deer. I was in Preston County up in the mountains. There's a beautiful spot up there, and this was a couple years ago, and it's outside of Aurora in a little place called Horseshoe Run. I could take you there. It really exists. I've been there. And I worked my way down this ridge out into a real backwards part where there's no fields, there's no roads, and it was maybe like a, a half a mile or a mile back into a place where nobody goes, and there was a confluence of a couple creeks, and it was a beautiful day. There was snow on the ground. And I was enjoying and appreciating God's creation. I was talking to the Lord and I was worshiping and just enjoying the alone time and the beauty of His creation. And I stood in the water. I had my shoe packs on. And I, you know how you step on top of the rocks and kind of in the, the stream bed? And I stood on a couple rocks right in the middle of the creek. And I was looking around and the land went up. And this is probably, at, I didn't check, maybe a thousand feet of altitude up in the hill country in the mountains. And I looked down and I picked up this rock. And you know what's in this rock? A whole bunch of fossilized seashell imprints. Now, wait a minute, I'm not at the beach. Look at all, it's all seashells just like you would find at the beach. I'm up in the mountains of West Virginia in a stream bed. You say, somebody took it and put it there, Pastor Van. I'll tell you something. There ain't nothing but country boys in Preston County. And where I was walking, country boys are not going to carry rocks in their pocket. And they know enough not to carry rocks in their pocket. And they know when they get where they're going, there's going to be plenty more rock. They did not carry the rocks in there. Trust me. 
When I looked at this rock, I said to me, I almost got goosebumps, and I thought, wow, the Genesis flood really happened. I believed it was true, but there was some evidence that was my Christian biblical worldview kicking in. If you have a naturalist worldview or a view based on naturalism, then you do not accept the spirit. Let's click them off. It denies the existence of the supernatural. Everything in the universe has a natural cause and a natural explanation. There is no revelation from God, and man is accountable to no one but himself. One more time. The naturalist denies the existence of the supernatural. Everything in the universe has a natural cause and a natural explanation. There is no revelation from God, and man is accountable to no one but himself. When he picks up this rock, he has to explain it based upon a theory that a man thought up that makes sense to a man. There can be no outside force coming in because all we know is what we know, and if I don't know it, it isn't. That's a naturalist. So he thinks maybe a glacier came through and drug it down in there or something, I don't know. But oh, does it fit the picture. I could stand there and I could see the ground heaving up. And I could see the fountains of the deep that Genesis talks about bursting forth. And all the moisture that was trapped in the canopy above, when we'll see in verse 2 of Genesis 1 starting next week, how the showers burst down and there were earthquakes and the ground shifted. And, and it was just like, did you ever do that experience? experiment in class where you put all different kinds of soils and gravels in a jar with water. You shake it up and you set it on the shelf and then the whole thing just sedimented down and separated itself into these layers. How the whole earth just got shook up and seashells ended up in a stream bed in Preston County in the slimy mud and the environmental climactic causes that came together were just right and it turned to stone. Mud turned to stone. It perfectly fit my worldview of Genesis. And I worshiped God. Who are you worshiping today? Are you worshiping man or are you worshiping God? Are you trusting in a living God who loves you and gave His only begotten Son to die for you? Are you, are you pretty sure that the box got filled up one day all by itself? Let me challenge you to stay with us for our series. Let me challenge you to read your Bible. The Bible says if we seek Him, we'll find Him. Let's bow in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, thank You today for challenging our hearts and our minds in this introductory matter. I pray, Lord, that You would give us an ability to think clearly. We do not want to be foolish people. We do not want to be simple-minded uneducated people, but we want to have our eyes opened and we want to see things how they really are and we want to discern right from wrong and we want to teach our children what is truth. Thank you, Lord, for the way you very simply and very factually just laid out your Bible, how much sense it makes. I pray, Lord, that you would work in our hearts now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.